Hello, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rufert. And I am Steve McDonough. Perky. <laughs> Perky as usual. Perky Steve McDonough. Perky Steve McDonough. Okay, all right. I'm just going to say what's happening here. I'm just going to tell you what's happening. Uh, Dan told me that when we start the podcast every week, Hans always sounds really happy. And Perky goes, hey, I'm Hans Rufert. And I always go, and I'm Steve McDonough. <laughs> and he says, why don't you ever have energy? And now I just, I can't say my name without sounding like an ass. So welcome, everybody. I'm Steve McDonough. <laughs> well, I love that he's got you thinking about your intro, just like you have got me thinking about my intro. But I, you also, you always bring... <laughs> You bring the energy towards, you know, when when it's uh, when you're on. So don't worry about that. You've got plenty of energy. You've got energy to spare. Thank uh, uh, in fact, I would say sometimes you are abuzz with uh, with energy. And I'll just jump right into our, our topic. And our topic today is honey. And uh, so you set us up there uh, for that. And honey is a giant topic. Uh, and so we're going to try our best to kind of, you know, pare this down to to the bare basics. Uh, it's also I just in, in talking, that was a, the, the sort of pet name for my parents. They would always call each other honey. Yeah. And, it, and it always seemed funny because like when they got into an argument, they would still use the word honey. You know, they would be like, well, honey, I thought you paid that bill or whatever it was. And so it's one of those words that is very sweet, but it also has a little bit of a, sometimes it had an edge to it. You know, it's a term of endearment that got a little edgy at times. I don't know. Maybe I just huh. overshared. Yeah, yeah, that's a totally personal thing. I think I, I overshared. else has a problem with yeah, honey. Yeah, sorry, mom. Uh, I notice you straight <laughs> people like to call each other baby a lot. I see that yeah. a lot, especially like on Amazing Race. People are like, yes, baby, you go, baby. Yeah. Straight people love the word baby. I, uh, being a straight person, I don't, I don't subscribe to that, uh, to that camp of baby. I'm well, not because you've got fan. those, those horrible scars from the word honey. All right. So anyway, <laughs> we're, let's talk about honey. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so uh, I, I always like to start with what is, and normally I have some kind of crazy Latin name for you um, when we're talking about plants, uh, and I will have a Latin name, but. Honey, I don't want to uh, over-scientific and sort of demystify it because it can be a little gross if you think about it. Uh, but the in a purely sort of elementary form, honey is the sticky sweet stuff that bees make, right? Uh, and we know it, of course. We've it is the original sweetener, like way before cane sugar. Honey was the our our first natural sweetener. And the honey that we all know and love is produced by an insect, uh, the honeybee, and its Latin name is Apis mellifera. Uh, but honey is produced by all sorts of insects, uh, hornets and wasps and bees. Um, but we enjoy the honey from this Apis mellifera because it is an exclusively flower feeding uh, insect. And now in tropical areas, other honey producing bees like to sort of augment their honey production by feeding on uh, things like uh, fresh animal feces or, um, you know, rotting dead animals. And uh, as you know, honey often takes on kind of the characteristics of the of the flower that it's um, harvested from. And so in those tropical areas, unfortunately, some of those flavors, if you can call them flavors, uh, kind of come across into those honeys. Um, yeah. So not I don't think I'd like to add a uh, a fecal floral uh, honey to my to my to my tea fecal honey nice uh, nope um, but uh, lucky for us our ancestors were smart enough to uh, to kind of hone in uh, on the you know flowers only variety of bees uh, when they started the sort of semi domestication of the honeybee it's not a truly domesticated animal we you know but uh, we kind of right, got a right. A good relationship. I'll use that word later. It's kind of the word that you use, isn't it? Domesticated bees. I mean, it's yeah. not like a puppy dog. 
Not quite. No, I mean, right. I, I wouldn't cool. mind. Uh, I, I have high-fived a bee. I don't know if you've seen people do that. Uh, if you Google high-fiving a bee, you can actually kind of uh, – it's more like a high one. They kind of lift their little paw and you can sort of high-five what? a bee. Yeah. What? Yeah, seriously. Uh, look it up. You can see people high-fiving a bee. I didn't make a video of me doing it. Uh, but what? I do – yeah, seriously. That's strange but true. Uh, I am. Can you get a video of you high-fiving a bee? I will try. I will try. And then I'll also have a video probably of another bee stinging me, uh, you know, as yeah, a, a flyby. I want to see both. Now, having said that, I'm going to totally jinx myself. I do have, in full disclosure, uh, an apiary. I have a, a hive. And to this day, knock on wood, knock on lots of wood, I've yet to be stung by my bees. Um, and they say that the temperament of the hive is all based on the temperament of the queen, which is kind of like a version of the southern expression, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So I seem to have a happy honeybee, the queen. And so far, I've been in there without wearing my suit. I've handled my bees. And so far, I've yet to be stung. So... I I didn't know you had bees, too. Bees I do. And, and figs. I've got pretty... I know. A lot of the things we've talked about, I have had or currently have. Um, anyway, so let's talk about... It's a pretty self-centered podcast. God, really, so. Now that I think about it, yeah. I don't have artichokes, though, uh, but maybe next year. <laughs> uh, so but let's talk about our honeybees. Uh, so here, to me, it's just fascinating. We start thinking about this. To make one pound of honey, which is expensive, if, you, if you've priced honey out lately, it's not cheap... But to make that one pound of honey, the twenty to 40,000 bees that are in a single beehive can travel over 55,000 miles and visit over 2 million individual blossoms to collect all of that nectar that's required for that yield. I mean, I mean, think about that. I mean, it's not an individual bee traveling 55,000 miles, but I mean, collectively, all, you know, say 40,000 members of that colony, uh, that's quite a commute. Now, I would buzz 55,000 miles, and I would buzz 55,000 miles. <laughs> oh, the proclaimers. Uh, we are not sending them a royalty check for that one. <laughs> um, maybe maybe an apology letter. But um, So what I think is really cool is that the bee, as a guy with no stomach, I think it's kind of cool that bees sort of have two stomachs. Um, they they have their personal stomach that so as they drink the nectar, some of that um, that nectar is fuel for them. That's going to kind of help carry them those fifty five thousand miles. But they have a separate uh, stomach. It's called their honey stomach or their crop, um, which is sort of like a storage tank, right? So that's where they're they're holding their excess nectar. Dude, if you were a bee, you'd still have a stomach left. I, I am jealous. I am very jealous that they have this. Not only, it's also called the honey stomach, which is kind of a cute name, you know. Oh, you need to do that whole Jeff Goldblum fly thing, get another stomach, and yeah. and you're golden. I love it. And then I can do like the this teleport and then, yeah, I get the, the yeah. weird hairs on my back, though, like Jeff Goldblum. That kind of always <laughs> freaked me out. Anyway, uh, so what what's really cool, though, is this, this, uh, this second stomach or this crop. Uh, there's a special enzyme in there that kind of sterilizes the nectar as they're collecting it. So uh, honey is famous for being this antimicrobial, antibacterial. Um, it has these properties. of It, it basically doesn't go bad. Um, and so that is mostly because of this enzyme that is in this honey stomach or the crop. Now, once they once the bee gets back to the hive, 
they empty the contents of their crop, or another way of saying empty is you, they are regurgitating it uh, mm-hmm. into the special wax holding cell that we all know as honeycomb, right? So this, that right. in itself is, is worthy of a podcast, the, the intricacies of how they create all of that. But essentially, it's, it's almost like their larder, it's their pantry, where they're keeping all of this... Um, all of this nectar. Now, it's not honey at that point. It really is just um, nectar that has been combined with this enzyme. Now, the next process sort of, this is, to me, is this is almost part magic. The, the hive collectively flutters their wings in, in this sort of constant uh, effort to circulate the air, and they evaporate the excess water from the honey, which in turn raises the sugar concentration and then prevents spoilage and fermentation. So it's got the enzyme, and now it doesn't have that excess water in there, which makes it this perfectly preserved food. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I and that's really, in essence, what, what honey is. It's sort of their tomorrow food for the entire hive. I mean, we think of insects as being a, um, you know, on the scale of evolution, like this lesser being to a degree, like, we, you know, we always sort of anthropomorphize and put ourselves at the center of the universe. But how cool that this uh, this colony is already thinking about their next generation and, and the needs of their colony in, in a very future forward sense. I love that. It's their Roth I IRA of, uh, uh, of honey, uh, but it yields uh, their investment. And that's the really cool thing is, is it is what they're feeding their – the workers that stay or in the drones that stay inside the hive, they feed them honey. They feed their larvae uh, honey. And it's also, of course, what ends up in our, uh, in our, in our hot tea or in our favorite honey-inspired cocktail, which I'm sure we're going to be learning about. Uh, mm-hmm. Here shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, quick story. Let me tell you though. You know, you hear about honey be- uh, bears being um, fans of honey and destroying honey hives, and they do. And in fact, we had that happen in downtown Jasper. A, a bear actually destroyed my first hive several years ago. But the bears aren't after the honey; they're actually after the larvae of the honeybees. And I didn't realize it. Now, they will eat the honey and the honeycomb too, but it's the protein from the actual bee larvae that the bears are after. And that's what uh, they're, they're, they hear the sound and they're drawn to that going to eat the actual, the bees, not so much the honey. So really, if, yeah, if Winnie the Pooh were accurate, he would in there, he, you would see him eating just lots of little bee larvae. Right, but he's eating it straight out of a of a, honey out pot. Of a, a honey pot, so it's already been. Yeah, that is true. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not sifted. What's the word? Uh, it's Strained. Yeah, ex- all of those other yeah. things are out of there. It's pure honey. Winnie the Pooh, freaking liar. Well, he's just a little posh, and he eats his honey with his pinky raised. I guess he's uh, he doesn't like the larvae. He's not a fan. He's not on. He's not on team larvae. Well, uh, listen, listen. I'm going to. I'm just totally going to interrupt you. This is very unusual. What I'm going to do, but you've set me up for my quiz. Oh wow, that's early. Right in the middle of yours, okay? Yeah, let's do because it. Because you brought up Winnie the Pooh, so I don't have to bring him up later. And I, I was bringing him up in a really random way. But since you brought him up in 2000, a paper was published in the Canadian Medical Journal. Uh, called Pathology in the Hundred Acre Wood, a Neurodevelopmental Perspective on A.A. Milne. So what it was is this paper talking about all of the different pathologies, uh, you know, and the, 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 uh, the mental disorders that each of the Winnie the Pooh characters represent, just kind of like they say in, on Gilligan's Island, each character represents one of the seven deadly sins. Now, like I said, this is in a real medical journal, and it was written tongue-in-cheek trying to raise awareness that anyone can have mental disorders and highlighting the need for support. But it's still a fun article. So which of these mental health conditions is not listed in the paper? All right. Okay. Winnie the Pooh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Piglet, 
generalized anxiety disorder, rabbit, narcissism, Christopher Robin, body dysmorphia, or Tigger, ADHD. I, they, I think you described them all to a T. I mean, <laughs> if any of those were not in there, then they missed a golden opportunity because I get anxiety watching Piglet. Oh, um, yeah. No, I, I, it, the answer has to be all of those were chronicled. No, one, one of them is not in there. Oh, really? Uh, maybe the, the body... I, I, I think the body dysmorphia. The body dysmorphia. Okay. You're right. It is Christopher Robin. Uh, they could not find a diagnosable disorder for Christopher Robin, although they said that Christopher lacks parental supervision and spends most of his time talking to animals. That is that is true. <laughs> I, I can totally All right. see that. Now, but, All right, there's my out-of-order quiz. I, but I love that, though, because the body dysmorphia thing, I always thought in the original A.A. Milne uh, illustrations or whoever did those that it um, – I can't remember the lady's name – but they looked like a female. I always thought it was a little always girl. Wearing those stupid little strappy sandals. Yeah, yeah. I'd and the haircut. Chris for Robin on the street, I'd kick him. Just kick him. <laughs> uh, that that probably speaks to one of your mental uh, your mental uh, conditions, but it's okay. Honey. <laughs> Uh, All right, come on. We're, we're doing a podcast and I've taken us way out. Oh, that's fine. That's uh, But I Digest. So uh, let's talk about history uh, on our winding path back to uh, back to honey. So again, long before cane sugar was even thought of as a, as a, a sweetener alternative, um, honey was it, right? And we see our oldest written reference to honey going all the way back uh, to 5500 BCE uh, in Egyptian writings. And references to honey are scattered throughout written human history. Uh, but if you look at sort of uh, the timeline, Homo sapiens are thought to have evolved around 50,000 years ago, but bees have been making honey for over 40 million years. So uh, they've been here quite a bit longer than we have. Um, and so that relationship, as I said, the whole semi-domesticated is, uh, is still fairly new in, in world history. Um, but the cool thing about honey is it, as I mentioned, it's one of those foods that really has an indefinite shelf life. And because of those antimicrobial, antibacterial properties, it lasts pretty much forever. And they would bury honey in the uh, in the pharaoh's tombs. And the idea was it would keep the pharaohs happy on their celestial journey into the afterlife. And hmm. amazingly, some of that honey that was excavated from these burial sites is still perfectly good. And in 2012, it was reported that the world's oldest honey had been discovered in the country of Georgia, not to be confused with the state of Georgia where I live. Uh, and archaeologists, uh, sorry, not archaeologists, this is uh, too many syllables there. Archaeologists estimate that the honey uh, from that uh, tomb that they found in Georgia was about 5,500 years old. And there were three distinct types of honey found in that tomb. There was meadow flower, berry, and linden. And much like in Egypt, the honeys were in these uh, sort of ceremonial ceramic vessels in, in the tomb. And this particular tomb was of a noble woman uh, so that she could have honey on her journey through the afterlife. And one of the archaeologists, I can't say that word today, one of the archaeologists. No, archaeologists. Uh, archaeologists. They were a happy. Yeah, one of the archaeologists. <laughs> uh, that person was quoted as saying that even the scent was still sweet and intense with musky undertones. Um, I don't know that I would be the first guy to stick a spoon in that 5,500-year-old jar of honey, but hmm. I'm fascinated that someone did. Now, uh, here on our uh, our little patch of land in uh, in the U.S., we know that the, the honeybees were first brought by colonists uh, to the New World in 1622. 
and uh, the bees pretty much acclimated and went went native and spread across the country. And I, I read where they actually sort of stopped at the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains formed this natural sort of uh, barrier. Bee with barrier. It, it was bee the bee. Barrier. It was the bee barrier. Uh, um, so they had to be eventually shipped around to California. Uh, you which... shall not buzz. You <laughs> shall not buzz. None shall buzz. That's right. Um, Anyway, so now, of course, bees are a huge part of the California uh, economy, and they're used as um, as pollinators to to pollinate pretty much everything that we eat uh, relies heavily on um, on the pollination of, of all of these crops that are done in California. And to think that they had to be actually shipped around the uh, the Rocky Mountains, I thought was kind of cool. Now, um, today, honeybees are pretty ubiquitous around the world. Their honey is produced in every state in the U.S. and really in most countries on the planet. Uh, and there are about 300 known varietals of honey in the U.S. alone. And typically, the honey varietal is named for the plant or the, you know, whether it's a tree or a shrub right. or a flower right. from which they originate. So in, in the U.S. here, we have things like clover and orange blossom and, sh and sage uh, or things like buckwheat, heather, raspberry, spearmint. Uh, in Greece, uh, they're famous for their wild thyme honey. In France, of course, lavender and acacia. And then uh, in Australia, their sort of most famous honey is the uh, different species of eucalyptus trees. And they actually do have that sort of menthol sort menthol, of uh, – yeah. yeah. And I love it. It's a really neat um, – not, not oh, always – I haven't tried that. Yeah, they're really good. And manuka honey, you might have heard of, is, is known for having uh, healing properties. And manuka honey has a, a very astringent flavor to it, but they use that in uh, severe wounds that they can't seem to get healed with, uh, with regular medications. They put manuka honey directly on the wounds, and it has uh, really good effects. Uh, so pretty magical stuff all the way around with uh, with our from our little buzzy buzzy friends. Okay, I'll take it from there. You talked about Greece and France and Australia, but did you know that Ukraine is known as the motherland of commercial beekeeping? Did you well, know? Wow, I uh, I did from my research, but uh, I don't know much about it. And, and Ukraine is a lot in the news uh, these days. Yes, but not for their honey. Gotcha. So up until the earliest, uh, the early 20th century, um, we're domesticating bees in bee skeps, a skep, S-K-E-P. Those, those are those, um, those straw woven domes that look like a Winnie the Pooh beehive. You know the ones? You buy them now at Pottery Barn, you put three on a table with some candles, you know, a <laughs> tablescape like those. But they were actually used for bees. And the problem is they have one fatal flaw, which is that the beekeeper has to destroy the colony to collect the honey out of that. So enter Ukrainian beekeeper Petro Prokopovich. Nice. So he's working out new methods of beekeeping that wouldn't do damage to the actual bees. So in 1814, he's the guy that invented the frame hive, those boxy wooden hives with the individual racks that we all know right now. Yeah. He invented that. And that, of course, makes for an easier honey harvest and doesn't harm the bees. And he also invented a queen excluder. So it's kind of a grid that goes in there so the worker bees can get in and out, but the queen can't fit through. And it keeps her from doing what we said earlier, which was to lay larvae into the honey so they don't have to process the honey. I have a, I have a, a queen excluder in my backyard. It does Well, you can thank Petro Prokovich. Now, he was not an archaeologist, was he? <laughs> he was not, but I've so far, so I just said his name twice correctly, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, pretty good. Good, good. Um, he also set up a beekeeping school. He's got a couple of statues around Ukraine. So if Petro can have some statues for bees, I think that there's still hope for me yet. 
Yep. I might get a statue, which you know I'm I'm still working for. We got, and we have to have dwarves uh, call back to dwarves. our first episode. Thank you. Too. Yes. But most importantly, Petro Prokopovich was the first person to ever model a bee beard. And you know that is the only reason I'm talking about him is because I wanted to get to bee beards. That's all I really wanted to talk about. You're like, we're going to do honey. I'm like, perfect. Bee beards. Bee beards. Awesome. So he started it off and then it became popular at freak shows, you know, the the occasional door-to-door honey salesman. Now, in order to create a bee beard, do you know how they do this, Hans, since you have bees? I do. They, they take the queen, right? I and mean, they're yes. all attracted to the queen. Have you made one since you have I, bees? I have not. I made a bee goatee. No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm not, <laughs> I've not even made so much as a, as a soul patch. Um, so no, I have not. You did. Uh, there's there's a, like a Brazilian joke in there about <laughs> not having any bees because I've got a Brazilian I've got hey, Brazilian bees so I can't. <laughs> we know from uh, from my earlier conversation that Brazilian bees sometimes uh, feed on feces, and so we don't want uh, we don't want that. Oh, <laughs> all right. I'm going to leave that there. So in order to create a bee beard, like you said, you have to prep the queen and her worker bees by separating them for a couple of days, and you fatten up the the worker bees with sugar water, make them complacent, and then you take the queen bee and you put it in this cute little cage. It looks like a little pencil box or a wooden matchbox with Mm -hmm. a screen on the top with just enough room for the queen. It's not like she can wander around, really. And then you put that cage underneath your chin, and then you create an artificial swarm by releasing the worker bees. And they all follow the queen's pheromones and they surround her in a, like a barrel of monkeys style. Yeah. So they're not holding onto your skin as much as they're holding on to each other. So they're all clinging to each other. Now, apparently it feels like you have a sunburn. It makes your skin feel really tight. Mm. And that's kind of how it feels to wear a bee beard. Now, how do you get rid of a bee beard? Apparently you just jump. You have to like do like one big hard jump to come down hard and knock the bees loose and then the remaining ones can be you know smoked away or gently brushed off isn't that crazy that is crazy and as much as i love my bees i'm i'm comfortable giving one a high five and i've even kind of given one a little pat on the back but the idea of wearing them as uh, <laughs> as a facial adornment uh, doesn't really excite me well facial adornment was so last year now you have to be totally covered in bees oh. in 1998 the world record was originally by uh, an american Named uh, Mark Bianchan, Bianchan Chanello, Mark Bianchan Chanello. <laughs> uh, he wore 90 pounds of bees all over his body. But in 2016, the record was broken by a Chinese national. And I'm not even going to pretend I'm going to say his name since I couldn't say Mark's name. And he was wearing 140 pounds of bees all over his body, 60 queen bees to get this swarm of an estimated 637,000 bees covering this man's body. He looked like a Yeti. It is so freaking disturbing. Oh, yeah. You have to post a picture of that or I'm going to have to Google that. Yeah, that's amazing. I will. And, and, you know, they don't wear protective clothing. They wear shorts and goggles. They stuff their ears with cotton and they have to stand on a scale so you can see how heavy it is. Yeah, I have heard of, uh, speaking of st- stuffing your ears with cotton, that's a great idea, because I have heard that bees will sometimes... During this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's not an endorsement. Uh, but I have heard, though, that bees do like to, you know, they're looking for things, and so they're yeah. used to going into the flowers, and so they go into the ear oh. canal, and they sometimes can't back out and have to be... Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I right, know. all right. So I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm advocating for the cotton in the ears, if you're going to try this at home. Don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. All right, so that's bee beards. My, this, my conversation today, by the way, just 
put on your seatbelts because I'm I'm veering all over this road. Because <laughs> now I want to talk about Mad Honey. Do you know what Mad Honey is? Uh, I do from my research, and I don't know that I would. No, try I do from my research. I did well, all this research before. <laughs> so you can't surprise me with anything. <laughs> How about you, dear listener? Do you know about Mad Honey? I'll talk to you instead. It's just you and I, just you and I in your car talking to you about Mad Honey. <laughs> So I had never heard of mad honey before last week, but it's been around since ancient times. And apparently it's a honey with hallucinogenic properties, some healing benefits. Uh, it can also be considered to be an aphrodisiac. So it's mainly prevalent in two areas of the world, the Black Sea region of Turkey and Nepal. But most of the ancient history comes from Turkey, so I want to start there. So it's slightly bitter, it's dark, it's reddish. It doesn't look like regular honey, and it's known as Deli Bal in Turkey. And you're talking about honeys picking up their flavor from different, uh, you know, the lavender or the eucalyptus. Yeah. This comes from rhododendron. Now, there's an ingredient in rhododendron. Now, there's you're going to love this, Hans. There's over 800 uh, species of rhododendron. Well, I know you love this kind of Yeah, including azaleas, which I saw some lovely azaleas yes. in your neighborhood. Yes. Um, and only a handful, very small handful, I, I've, I've read like maybe just two or three, have this one uh, neurotoxin, natural neurotoxin called grayanotoxin. And in small quantities, it brings on lightheadedness. Uh, I've also heard that it can feel like if you were drinking absinthe, feelings comparable to that. But in larger doses, the, this honey can lead to fainting and vomiting, hallucinations, uh, seizures. I saw a video of a guy having a seizure after he fainted and vomited <laughs> and uh, in rare cases, death. And apparently, you know, there's very few cases. You may see one come up every couple of years, but it's usually like, you know, a traveler who's visited Turkey and is trying to, you know, try it out. But Turkey is good for this because they have tons of rhododendron, but the mountainous slopes around the Black Sea, they have, they're like the perfect habitat for them to grow in huge swaths. So the bees are only collecting the nectar from these rhododendrons and they're not being mixed in with other nectar. So it gets, the deli bal gets really potent and pure and it's very expensive. It's about $166 a pound. Wow. So the history we go back to 67 BC and Pompey the Great um, and his Roman army, they're chasing the Persians along the Black Sea. Now the Persians gather up pots of this local honey and you know honeycomb and they leave them out for the Romans to find. And the Romans are like, ooh, <laughs> there's free honey, like a bunch of Italian Winnie the Poohs. Nice. They're like, look at the full of free honey. How do, well, hey, look at all of the free honey, is what do they say. Oh, we eat this, give the Persians a break. So they sit and they eat the honey. They become loopy, they become disoriented. Their accents get even worse than <laughs> I just had. They can't fight. The Persians turn back around and slaughter over a thousand of them. Wow. wow. Right? Yeah. Do you know what that was? A honey trap. A honey <laughs> trap. Wow. <laughs> that just occurred to me. Okay. So it's difficult to find this in Turkey. It's not something that people are like, hey, you have the mad honey. Um, I've read a couple of Turkish people say it's not prevalent. Not, you know, maybe you'd see some local shepherds, you know, doing it or tourists but it's not like out on the shelves to purchase. But I've also read that it might not be on the shelves, but it might be, you know, under the counter. Uh, you might even see some created in the US, but you need enough of those rhododendrons in one area to make it concentrated. And this can happen in the Appalachian Mountains. Oh, in my backyard. Yeah, in your backyard after a cold snap, the rhododendrons are hardier and a cold snap can kill out the other flowers and uh, 
the bees can just be finding this rhododendron. In fact, there's tales from uh, the Civil War when the Union troops were down in your area and they found beehives in the mountains. They ate the honey and they had their own like a uh, Roman troop situation. You know, why is it everything that's uh, that is exciting like that? Uh, the, the side effects are always things like you become sick and you get you vomit and become disoriented and then die. Like no, nobody knows when to stop. Right. Just a little bit. <laughs> just let's just have a little bit of mad honey. Can we have some like a taste like, of honey. Yeah. A taste of honey. A, taste a, bit, of honey. a bit. Oh, honey. A bit of honey. Oh, I see. Right. Right. Exactly. But I was saying like in Turkey, you might be able to find it, you know, under the counter. But here you can actually purchase mad honey on the internet ah. of course there's brands right on amazon wow. of mad honey but those honeys are from nepal so all right seatbelt on making a left turn to nepal <laughs> so there's a tribe of people called the gurungs did you read about this one during your studies hunts i did you this is all new territory i've not oh, been to it? nepal okay so a tribe of people called the Gurungs, they live at the base of the Himalayas. They're originally from Tibet and they live in the village now that's, uh, it's so remote. It's a two day walk from the nearest road. Wow. Now they've lived there for, you know, generations, generations. They've got like this almost mystical relationship with bees. They've got the common bee that we understand. And they also have the giant Himalayan bee that is twice the size of a normal bee. And it has a very scary name, the giant Himalayan bee. <laughs> Now, as far as the like domesticated, I said I was going to talk about domesticated bees. In their homes, they've built holes in their actual houses so that the bees will make hives in their houses and they can just grab the honey from inside the house. That is like hella convenient. I love that idea. Right, right. Um, okay, so they've got people in the tribe uh, that are honey hunters and they harvest the honey. That's a lot. That's great alliteration, hey? Harvest from the honey. giant Himalayan bees. They, <laughs> the honey those. hunters harvest the Himalayan honey. From the hives. From the hives. Um, they do it twice a year, but only once a year is it uh, really heavy with the rhododendrons and it becomes the uh, psycho-hypnotic properties of the mad honey. Now, the giant Himalayan bees, I'm going to put up a, a, a link to some of these videos because you know I read a lot about it, but then when I was watching the videos, I'm like, why am I reading? I, these videos are insane. The giant Himalayan bees, they nest on cliffs, sheer cliff walls, not like hills, like sheer cliff walls, wow. massive hives. And the Gurung tribe, they risk their lives to get this honey. So they go into the jungle without any protective clothing. They've got sandals and t-shirts, right? And P.S. They they can't stay there. They have to be out by nightfall because of bears and tigers. Bears. That is where they live. <laughs> oh my! Giant bees and bears and tigers. Yeah. So they're hanging from the side of these cliffs. They smoke the bees out and they carve chunks of the honeycomb and drop it into baskets. Now to do this, you need a lot of equipment. They bring with them um, some bamboo and a rooster. Uh, I, the bamboo I might be able to understand. The rooster is that like a mascot? Yeah, mascot. It's not actually a rooster. It's one. Most of them are in t-shirts and sandals. There's one guy in a rooster suit. Oh, good. good. Um, so they bring rolls of braided bamboo. So they've made bamboo into ropes, and they've you know rolled that up, and they're carrying that on their back. And then they've also got like sticks with notches in them. So they unroll this braided bamboo, and they take the sticks and they put it into the rope to make a ladder. So they've made a rope ladder with this, right? Just by carrying this on their backs. Uh, it's the kind that you'd see at a carnival. Hey, see if you can make it to the end of the yeah. rope ladder without flipping over. Um, 
Now they're Buddhist, but they still have uh, some superstitious uh, uh, thoughts about the forest and they do a religious ritual, not just the forest, but about nature. Uh, they do a religious ritual to invoke the spirit of the forest and to calm the spirit of the forest and to ensure a successful honey harvest by sacrificing the rooster. No. Right. But, you know, they're in their two day walk from another road. So they're not, you know, going to waste anything. So before they start that, they take the rooster and they make a curry. Nice. Okay, so well, mean, good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. okay. So then they're just going to cut more jungle bamboo that's around them, and they're going to use those as additional tools, you know, sticks to jab at the at the uh, honey hive. They're going to use wet leaves and put them at the base of the cliff to create smoke that goes up and really upsets the bees. And then they're going to lower some other smoking leaves off the top of the cliff uh, towards the bees. And some are doing the vertical rope ladder that they've made to get up to the hives and some are just dangling from a whole edge of the cliff rope situation. Nah, nah. Yeah, t-shirts and sandals. Nope, nope, nope. I, so, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to watch the video from afar, but not be a part of that. It's crazy. They're literally risking their lives, and that's Nepal, the the land of goats, milk, and honey. Mad honey, mad honey. Goats, milk, and mad honey. Yeah. Which brings me to the lamest ever transition for stuff. I thought we were going to um, make the whole episode. I thought I thought I was I know. Uh, getting a pass. This is just I had no transition. I had no transition. I had I had a couple Winnie the Pooh transitions, but I didn't have a stump the straight guy transition. There's not a Winnie the Pooh musical. We need to write one. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay, know. so there is actually a musical called Milk and Honey, which I don't expect you to know. It's a 1961 musical nominated for five Tonys, including Best Musical and Best Score, but it didn't win anything. It was the first book musical written by Jerry Herman. And it is about, believe it or not, and look at you shaking your head. That's something straight guy was going to be about Jerry Herman, but you're already shaking your head because you don't even know who he is. It is about, are you ready for this? It's about a busload of lonely American Jewish widows trying to catch a husband while touring Jerusalem. Wow. That's a premise. Does that sound fun? Yeah. I love that. So they're just touring Jerusalem trying to catch one. Uh, so Jerry Herman wrote Mame. You know Mame. Uh huh. Do you know Hello Dolly? And uh, yeah. Do you know La Caja Fall? Never heard of it. You never heard of La Caja Fall? I don't even know what language that is. Oh my god! <laughs> then you are so going to lose this stump the straight guy. Okay, so for anyone else who wants to play, because Hans has already lost it, <laughs> La Caja Fall is about to be. I'm telling you, this is the worst transition ever for stump the straight guy, but it's a good one. La Caja Fall is about to be done here in Chicago. Um, and uh, the person playing Alban, the drag queen uh, persona, the aging star of La Caja Fall, is played by this RuPaul famous drag queen. And this is what I was looking for, Hans. Do you know your RuPaul drag queens? I've seen a couple episodes. All so, right. Um, but do you know this redheaded glamour toad? She was a season seven finalist in season two All-Stars. And in season six, she was an All-Stars finalist. She was known for a big send up of John Waters' Pink Flamingo, where she sang about eggs. And she played Adele in Snatch Game and she won Snatch Game. She is a redheaded glamour toad. She's going to be playing Alban here in Chicago in Lacage, And her name is... 
I just love that you keep saying redheaded glamour toad. I think that is such an awesome name. I've never heard that. It's a great. Does, is that a term of endearment? Somebody likes that's the what name? she calls herself. I love that. The redheaded glamour toad. I don't know the answer. I you have don't no know idea. But no, but I'm going to be looking this up. This sounds awesome. All right. All right. Well, let me just tell you, hopefully not the same thing happens to you, because when I was Googling her for just some like updated information, now my phone just keeps showing me pop up ads of ladies underwear. So now, now my phone is broken. It just broke my phone. Oh, no. All right. For those of you paying attention last week in our Artichokes episode, uh, Stump the Straight Guy was the musical Fiorello. And I wanted Hans to tell us if he knew who played the lead in Fiorello. It was Mr. C. And he knew it was Tom Bosley. Bosmati. Tom Bosmati. <laughs> you did say Bosmati. And that, my friends, is my long and winding road. Let's sit down and eat. Time for some recipes. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. Well, now I'm kind of wishing that my recipe included bamboo and a sacrifice rooster. It does not. Um, <laughs> but you, <laughs> I didn't know about it ahead of time. But now uh, you could use this recipe on a freshly sacrificed uh, rooster. Um, I, uh, <laughs> um, I make a salad dressing, which is very similar to a Greek salad dressing. I love it when you incorporate a little bit of uh, cheese into a salad dressing. It gives it oh, that, yes. that sort of creaminess that cream will mm -hmm. not do, right? It's mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. and feta works brilliantly for that. And the combination of honey and feta, even just as an appetizer, take a block of feta and drizzle some damn honey on there. And it's, it's a, it's an almost perfect thing. But yes, now, Queen. Uh, yes. Uh, Sorry, I'm, so, I'm still on our redheaded glamour toad. Uh, glamour toad, yeah. Uh, but if you now add a little white balsamic uh, to that sort of thing and, and shake the hell out of it or give it a good blend uh, with some good olive oil or avocado oil, some garlic, and it really becomes – it is sort of my go-to dressing. Anytime I'm doing a demonstration where I, I have to take – you know, make something out of just a handful of, uh, of ingredients – that's always one that people are wowed by, but it's also so easy to replicate. And just like with anything, the quality of your ingredients is going to dictate the quality of the final product. So spend the money on the good, like, you know, Bulgarian feta and spend the money on a good, you know, local honey and uh, get some good avocado oil because this will keep in your fridge. You make the dressing once, it'll keep in your fridge for months if you forget about it. Uh, but you won't forget about it because you'll eat it on everything. It's great on a pasta salad. It's great on, uh, on with any salad dressing, it's good on lettuce, of course. But I, uh, I don't really eat that much lettuce anymore because salad dressings are mm, so yeah. far beyond lettuce, you know? Yeah. Um, so make well, you this- You probably don't have all that the space right that in is your true. gut for something that's wasteful like lettuce correct that is very true i have to i have to think of every ingredient as an opportunity yeah. um yeah. and you know for a while that almost kind of took away some of the magic of food like i started thinking well you know in in terms of its components but now several years into it i get excited about that i start thinking of these ingredients again as as opportunities and i don't want to waste space it's almost like when you pack for a vacation you don't want to pack stuff that you don't need you don't want to carry that stuff around so uh this is a very simple effective powerful punch of flavor uh, and the honey is very forward in the recipe so i think you'll enjoy this this will be a this will be a favorite of yours all right i'm going to talk about a cocktail that is one of my very 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 favorite cocktails called a brown derby and uh the way i make it is with rye whiskey a honey liqueur i use baron jaeger which is a uh, a german 
liqueur, meaning bear hunter. Hey, it's um, made. Uh, it's literally made ten minutes from where my cousin Toby, who helped us out on Toby, the beer episode. Toby, yes. Um, Baron Jaeger is made ten minutes from his house. It has um, every seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle has two hundred twenty five grams of honey in it. Wow, it's, it's a great. It's a great product. Oh, I a love very it. pretty bottle too. And anyway, in uh, with a brown derby. They traditionally would use regular honey or honey syrup. I much prefer my version, rye whiskey, honey liqueur, and grapefruit juice. It is one of those cocktails that I'll have one of, and then um, it becomes my go-to drink for a week or two. Okay, but this is what I want to, I'm going to back up and tell you the story of the Brown Derby. So the Brown Derby was a cocktail by all of my research that was originated in the Vendome Club in uh, in. California in the 1930s, but was named after the Brown Derby restaurant, which was also in Hollywood, which was actually shaped like a Brown Derby hat. Now, that always seemed a little strange to me that it wasn't named after the restaurant itself, but was from a neighboring club. Well, here's the thing. Today, I was doing a little bit of research on it. And I've told you about David Wondrick before. He's my kind of my cocktail hero and he writes for Esquire. So I'm like, well, what, what did he say about the history? So I just, I checked it out today and he talked about a brown derby drink that was rum and maple sugar and lime from the 1930s. I'm like, I, well, where's the other brown derby? So I do a bunch more research. Now I have the brown derby in my book. I, I used to serve it at my restaurant. And I found this article by Robert F. Moss. Have you heard of him? I have not. I, I hadn't either before. Interesting guy. He's from South Carolina. He's a cookbook author. Uh, he does a lot of barbecue and he writes for Southern Living. So he's a player. Um, and he says that the Brown Derby cocktail that I know is a plagiary. Oh, no. Yeah. He says the Brown Derby is identical to the De, uh, de Rigueur um, which is a French word, de, de rigueur cocktail, which appears in the 1930 book, Savoy Cocktail Book by Harry Craddock. It's also, it's one of the Bible books, the Savoy. Right? Yeah, you've talked about it before, I think. So he was saying that Harry Craddock's version from the 1930s, the de rigueur, whiskey, grapefruit juice, and honey, originally appeared in, appeared in a 1927 book called Here's How, which I have. It's a brilliant little wooden covered book. It's nice. really fun. It's a really old book. And that, that originally came from that. But there's also this obscure little novelty book called Hollywood Cocktails, which you probably, you know, no one would really know about. It's an odd little 50-page book. It was published by a guy named George Buzza. And it's filled with like these sleek, stylized drawings of Hollywood clubs, people doing uh, men and women sipping cocktails. So it's all about Hollywood cocktails of the time. So they've got a cocktail for a drink uh, named after the Coconut Grove Hotel in Hollywood. They've got one named after Montmartre Hotel. They've got one for the Brown Derby. Now, it turns out that his Brown Derby cocktail is word for word stolen from the Savoy cocktail book. It's the De Rigueur. Wow. And Moss says there are dozens and dozens of recipes lifted word for word from these other books renamed after Hollywood hotspots with these stylized de deco illustrations. So this blows my mind because what I know is the Brown Derby and research. I mean, this this cocktail recipe that is in my book is in many well-known cocktail books as the Brown Derby. But the reason why Wondrick didn't talk about it is because really now the more research has been done, it's a lie. It was wow. just stolen. All of these other recipes were just plagiarized and renamed. Now, that being said, my Brown Derby apparently has the wrong name but it is still a delicious yet plagiarized 
<laughs> it's the, the pleasury that makes it so delicious. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like the uh, it's like the aphrodisiac in the uh, in the mad honey that makes it so delicious. It's the it's the plagiarism that gives it that little bit of sting. Okay, so if you would like to see any of these recipes, go to our website, budidigestpodcast.com, where I may have another recipe that's been plagiarized from some other book. What the <laughs> hell do I know? I thought I knew research. I thought I knew what I was doing. Um, if you want to email us and say, hey, stop plagiarizing cocktails, Steve, go to budidigestpodcast at gmail.com. Twitter and Facebook are at budidigestpod, Instagram, budidigestpodcast. Uh, also on our website, you can find a link to Hans's line of spices. And Hans, is there going to be any spice in there? Uh, there is. In fact, but the first spice blend that I made some 15 years ago was inspired by granulated honey. I wanted to make a barbecue rub that didn't have, um, you know, the high fructose corn syrup or these artificial artificial or bleached sugars. And I found uh, granulated honey, which is basically just dried out honey and made a dry barbecue rub. And it's called Honey Buzz. So uh, on point. It's delish. I have it. And um, you can also find a link to download my uh, cocktail book along with the plagiarized Brown Derby cocktail, The New Old Bar. <laughs> As always, we want to do special thanks to our web designer, Hewitt Rabel, and to our editor, Natalie DeChico. Special music was by Corey Goodrich, and our theme music is by Brian Reyes. Hans, are we done here, or do you need to do a little archaeology before we before we sign off? I am a huge fan of archaeologists. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go high-five a bee in my backyard. Done. <laughs>